We're going to just dig right in to uh, 1 Corinthians 5. We've been in a study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and today we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, I have to tell you, this is a wild chapter of Scripture. So, um, let me ask you a question before we dig into that, and that is, um, so we got an extra hour of daylight, right? How, how are you going to use that hour? Anybody think about that? Because how many times have we said, I wish there was just more time in the day? And I know scientists that there's not more time in the day, but there's an extra hour of daylight in your day. You ever think about how, here's some things you can do. You can pay your bills with that extra hour. You can go for a run. You can meet somebody for lunch. You could, you could get into an argument, argue your point vehemently, see the error of your ways, apologize, and be forgiven all in an hour. You could bake a potato, you could write in your journal or your blog, you could back up your hard drive, which might be, for some of you, the best hour you spend all year. So, anyway, I'm just saying, you have an extra hour. Um, something else that it takes about an hour to do. It takes about an hour to read 1 Corinthians. See what I just did there? It takes about an hour to read 1 Corinthians. I bring this up just to remind us, when we come to today's text, that we're reading a letter a letter that was written by Paul that was meant to be read aloud in a group setting in one sitting. So if you think that we're going too quickly through 1 Corinthians or you think, man, I wish we would slow down and really take our time with 1 Corinthians, Paul preached 1 Corinthians in one sermon. It was 1 Corinthians. That was it. The letter that was sent, it was, it was read. And when we come to a chapter like this, we need to remember that it's a part of a much larger letter and that letters have themes and they have objectives and they develop as they go. And that's what's happening here. And so I want us to remember some of the themes that we've covered so far. Because right now we're about mm, 15 minutes into the reading of the letter that is 1 Corinthians. And so far what Paul has been developing is this. He's been saying that these people that he's writing to, this church in Corinth, are people that he loves. He regards himself as a spiritual father to them. He was, he was the guy who was instrumental in seeing this church established and planted, the first Christian church ever in the city of Corinth. And he loves these people. He cares about them. But also we know from the letter already that they're really immature. They're immature people. And we see the fruit of this and the jealousy and the envy and the strife that is among them. They have these unhealthy relationships with each other. And we talked a few weeks back about how there's this great indicator of spiritual maturity in the health of our relationships with one another. That if our relationships with one another in the church are really unhealthy and broken, then the odds are really, really good that that's telling us that we're also very spiritually immature, that we're not able to do relationships in a healthy way. They're people who quarrel over who they prefer as pastor. Some like Paul, some like Apollos, some like Peter, some like, some say, I just follow Jesus, which is a cop-out, right? Because you don't mean that. You, you, you mean that you, you follow your understanding of following Jesus at the exclusion of these, other, anyway. Um, they become proud of themselves. They think that they're way more mature, that they're way better off, that they're 
kings and queens in the city of Corinth. Um, and they have all these blind spots. And Corinth was a hard city to be in. You know, it was a port city. It was a very man-centered city where the glory of man was a kind of a currency there. That if you were talented or eloquent or good-looking, that you were prized over... That doesn't happen anymore, but, but that's what was happening in, in Corinth. I'm just kidding. That happens all the time. But that's what was going on, that it was a very man-centered place, and this young church fell into this pattern of wanting to prize man-centered posturing over the work of Christ on their behalf. And so Paul's developing these themes, and then we come to chapter 5, we're maybe 15 minutes into the letter, and today that we discover, look, Paul's concerns for them are not just theoretical. It's not that he just sees some things about them that are problematic to him, but there are some serious, specific issues that are going on in their midst, and he's writing to address them. And so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 5, and then we're going to work our way through this part of the letter. Are you ready? This is 1 Corinthians 5. You can follow in your Bible or on your Bible app on your iPhone. Um, Here it is. It is actually reported, Paul writes, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing, and when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, the first people to ever read these words would have had multiple opportunities to throw up their hands and say, I just can't even go there. Our culture is not that much different, Father, than the culture in Corinth, and I pray, Lord, that you would engage us with your text, uh, with your word, with the spirit of what it is that you're saying to us, um, and that we would want to be people who understand 
uh, what is and what is not being said in a passage like this. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and do that supernaturally in our midst. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So there it is. There are kind of two things going on in this passage. The first is that there's a man in the Corinthian church, a man who considers himself, calls himself a brother in Christ, um, a brother to the rest of the believers there, and he's having an inappropriate relationship either with his mother or his stepmother. Um, But either way, Paul says, this relationship is of a nature that the pagan world around you looks at this and says, ugh. So that's happening. And apparently this man has a clear conscience about this, that it's not something that is troubling to him. And we know this because of the way Paul is writing about it. Um, Because there are other places in Paul's letters when he's writing to churches where there are people caught in patterns of sin and they're recognizing the brokenness. And good news for us, because when there's struggle and wanting to be free, Paul's approach is, as Galatians 6.1 says, that you're to seek to restore a person caught in a pattern of sin gently. But this is different. This is a flagrant turning a blind eye to immorality that's happening here. The other thing that's going on, though, is this isn't just a chapter about this guy. In fact, this guy is, is a part of the chapter, but really what Paul is getting at, did you see it, is he's asking this question, why is nobody saying anything to him? Why aren't you speaking up? This is happening in your midst, and there are people outside looking in at your congregation, and they're repulsed by what's happening, and you're not saying anything. Do you, get, do you get the picture of what's happening? This is Paul contending. I was watching TV the other night, and there was this study. They were, you know, with the hidden camera kind of thing. And, uh, um, and what it was was the, there was this married couple um, who, who invited uh, the husband and wife. The wife invited two of her girlfriends to dinner with them. So it was four of them, husband, wife, Girlfriend, girlfriend, right? And they go to dinner at this restaurant. And they're sitting kind of in the bar area. And at some point during the dinner, the husband gets up, excuses himself to the restroom, and a man at the bar starts flirting with the wife and starts saying things like, you know, I couldn't help notice, but you're, very, you're a very attractive woman. And uh, maybe I could buy you a drink sometime. And she then totally flirts back. And says, well, if you're going to give me your number, you better do it quick because my husband's in the restroom and he's going to be back any second. And he does, so he writes down his number and gives it to her and she takes it. And then before the husband's back, she's talking to her girlfriends and she says things like, he's kind of cute, isn't he? And they're like, yeah, he's kind of kind of cute. She's like, I, you know, I mean... As long as like, my husband doesn't find out, nobody gets hurt, right? I mean, that's... that's I, I think I'm going to let him buy me a drink. You know what I mean? And they're like, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and the whole point of the study was to see if friends will speak up. And what the researchers found was that very few did. Very few people spoke up. They just kind of, and they interview this one woman who was at the table who was kind of watching this happen. And they're asking her, what, what were you thinking 
while this was going on with your, your married friend, what, what was going through your mind? And she says, well, I just thought, who am I to judge? You know, if, if, if this makes her happy, who am I to keep her from happiness? Is this the way it really works? I mean, we can empathize with the fear of wanting to enter into conflict, but really? This question, who are you to judge, is a question that Paul turns radically upside down from what many Christians think, what our culture thinks. It's a very insightful question she asks, as long as she's not asking it rhetorically. Who am I to judge? There's this complaint against Christians. If you're not a believer in the room, if you're not a Christian in the room, I'm glad you're here because, um, for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is today I'm talking to Christians. Paul's talking to Christians. And if you're wondering what Christianity is about, today you're gonna get to see a little bit of how the sausage gets made in the Christian life, okay? So, we're gonna try to deal honestly with a hard issue. Christians get this complaint all the time, that we're too judgmental, right? I mean, yeah, that's right, yeah. Christians are too judgmental. Do you think that the presumption behind that statement The presumption being that a true, consistent characteristic of a Christian is that they possess no judgment toward others whatsoever. Do you think that that's true? That that's a true description of a Christian? If you're really a Christian, you possess no judgment toward anyone whatsoever. That's just basic Christianity. Is that true? Because the problem is, is that there's evidence that people use to ban Christians from any form of judgment. What is the evidence that people use to ban Christians from any form of judgment? Scriptural evidence. What is it? What's the verse? Everybody quotes. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Right? It's there in the Bible. You know what's even more problematic about this? Jesus said it. Ah! So wait... What's Paul doing? Is he contradicting Jesus? Because what does he say? Judge. Judge those inside the church. Don't judge the world. It's not your place. God does that. But you do judge each other. He says it. It's right there. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 12. He says it. It's what the whole text is about. When Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged, he says it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, one of these great three chapter long places in scripture where Jesus' teaching is, he's kind of laying it all out there. He's talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Another theme that's happening here in Corinth, that there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan, which is also the kingdom of this world. And, and, And you're in one or the other, but you can't be in both. Jesus goes on, though, after he says, judge not lest ye be judged. The very next thing that he says is this, and it's so important to understand what he's saying in context. He says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. 
and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, Jesus is not really talking about not judging other people. He's talking about judging others from an ivory tower position where it's purely a one-way thing, and you're just proclaiming judgment over people, but not recognizing that you are also open to the same scrutiny, the same judgment. He's saying, don't think you can enter in to judging others without opening yourself up to being judged as well. And if you don't want to be judged as well, don't judge other people. Now there's a huge problem in the church. There's a huge problem in Christian circles and that is that we do this so wrong. We place guilt on others while regarding ourselves as innocent, right? We do this. We're not the only people who do this though. Political parties do this. All kinds of religious people do this. People who share an industry together do this. They look at their company and they say, our company is so much better than that company. That company is stupid because that company does this and that and that and that without ever assessing your own. It's just, we do this, right? And this, what we're talking about here is what? It's hypocrisy. That's what we're talking about. Hypocrisy. Judging people as though you are just skating through and you're fine. But Paul is turning this upside down. And he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, this is important, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. In other words, he's saying, you can't live in a world where these things aren't happening. They're happening all around you. But he says, I'm writing not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who calls himself a Christian, who takes the name of Christ and does this in an unrepentant way. That's really important for us to understand, that it's an unrepentant, I am not changing, there is not a problem with this, who are you to speak into my life on this issue kind of way. Paul is saying, draw a line. Draw a line. Draw a strong line. Don't even eat with him. Don't talk about sports and the weather. If you're gonna talk, talk about one thing. This is strong language, right? This might be a radical departure from what you think. Paul says, don't judge the world. People, don't judge people who don't believe the way that you believe. That judgment is God's to make, but do judge others in the church. Those who call each other brother and sister in Christ a lot is being presumed about the quality and the nature of your community in the church here, isn't it? That you're saying, I'm in this community because I want you to speak into my life. All right? <laughs> we are opening a can of worms, everybody. I know we are, all right? I'm, I'm gonna do my level best to unpack all the questions that I'm seeing, and there's still gonna be a jillion more that aren't answered, but, but, but hang with me. We say don't judge, but when we say don't judge, that is in itself, if you think about it, a judgment. That's a judgment itself. It's the idea that moral ambivalence can exist without consequence. That's a judgment call. That if we're not gonna speak into each other's lives and let everybody just kinda do whatever it is that they wanna do, we are making a serious judgment call that we can do that without consequence. And Paul is saying you can't do that without consequence. That's what the leaven is about. You know, when he's talking about there's, there's a little bit of leaven works its way through the whole batch. He's saying don't think that you can turn a blind eye to immorality in your midst without that immorality becoming very, very attractive to everyone. That if you can do something 
that the pagans look at and say, that ain't right. Um, maybe what I want to do isn't that offensive, but it's still immoral. I've got a lot of margin now, don't I, to explore that, knowing nobody's going to speak into my life because they're not speaking into this guy's life. There's a, there's a lot going into this, and one of the things that we're, we're kind of holding out, which in our culture is debated a lot, is, is there such a thing as a common morality for people to share? You know, if something is wrong or right for me, does it need to be wrong or right for you? And part of the, the issue with the world outside of Christ is that it's a very subjective thing, you know, that what's right for me is what makes me happy. Like the woman said, well, if it makes her happy... Who am I to keep her from being happy? The alarm bells that should be going off in our heads, though, should be common sense saying, no happiness is going to be found there. That's not going to lead her anywhere happy. That's going to lead her to misery. So we need to speak into that. So where is a common morality coming from? Well, for Christians, we would say that our shared morality must be the morality of Christ that he is the head and we are the body, that, that as goes his mind and his words, so goes our moral boundaries. Well, what were Christ's moral boundaries? They were his teachings and the scriptures that he upheld as authoritative, the Old Testament and the apostles' teachings, which were to be, as Paul expressed to Timothy later, God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So scripture Jesus' moral code was scripture, okay? Now, we can spin off into all sorts of questions, like who says that the Bible's morality should be embraced by everyone as opposed to, say, Vanity Fair's morality? You know, who's to say which is better than the other? We're gonna end with that question, and we're getting there. But I wanted to plant that question and and name that question in front of us because that's important. Who says that Christian morality is the one that we should embrace, especially if you're a Christian. There's a reason. Um, But let's just take it as a given that Christians are called to embrace and to share a common morality, the morality of Scripture. And then let's look at why it matters to Paul that nobody is speaking up. Because there are things at stake. There are things at stake here. The first thing at stake, I'm going to give you three. The first thing that's at stake here is the church, the community of believers here, this idea of the leaven that you could allow a little corruption to go on unchecked without it eventually corrupting everything else doesn't make sense. And Paul is saying, and it's not just that, but it's that you seem to have an arrogant posture toward this. Like you really think you're fireproof. You really think you're bulletproof. You really think that you can turn a blind eye to what's happening here and it won't affect everything else. The second thing that's at stake here is the man himself, the man who's in this pattern of sin. And let's just get into this because Paul says strong things. You heard it when it went past. Hand him over to Satan. Purge the evil person from among you. If you're not a a Christian or you don't have a lot of experience with the Bible, these are the kind of verses that you might be tempted to say, hmm, I don't like, those are not, those don't work. Those don't work in my understanding of, 
but they're here. So what is he saying? Again, context helps us so much. When he says, expel the immoral person from among you, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy 17.7. It's this idea that, look, if you have people who are engaged in ongoing unrepentant sin that is destructive to them and to the people around them, and they will not change, then you, you draw a line. And you say, we're only going to have one conversation, and it's about this. And you're not coming into my house to eat with my family. And we're not talking about sports, and we're not talking about the weather. We are committed to this. Let him know that there is only one context in which he can have a relationship with you, and that is the context of repentance, okay? You're to deliver this man to Satan. This is an expression of you're to put him into the world. You're to put him outside of the church and into the world. We talk about church discipline. This is one of those texts that people use, but let's not get off on the rabbit trail of just talking about church discipline. We're talking about you and me right now. We're talking about you and me and the relationships that we have and how we engage people in them. Is it too strong, these, Paul, these words from Paul, are these too strong for your taste? And if so, what would you prefer Paul say? If Paul's right, if there's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ, would you rather Paul say, who are you to judge? Instead of what he says, judge. Judge this person. And this is where we get to what's at stake for the heart of this man. Why would he call them to judge this man? Not to kick him to the curb. Because in context, what does he say? He says, judge him. Deliver this man over to the kingdom of this world. For the destruction of his flesh, he continues, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. His redemption, his restoration is what's in view. And this so that he may, for the destruction of the flesh, is Paul's way of saying, let the natural consequences of this man's conduct play themselves out in his life. If he won't hear you, if he won't repent, if he won't see that this is a problem, that this is against scripture, then let it play itself out as a mercy to him. Uh, oh, we're in real deep now, guys. We are. I, 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 I know that this is uncomfortable. Let's keep going, okay? Let's keep going. This is for the good of the man. It is to awaken him to the reality that he is choosing by his conduct and to take him to the end of himself. And that is a mercy. That is a mercy. Shame and scorn are not Paul's objectives. Paul wants these people to confront this man and to give him what I call an apocalyptic moment. An apocalyptic moment. Here's what I mean by that. A moment where people in your life stand in front of you and they say, I hear you calling yourself a brother, but I'm seeing your life and I cannot receive the fact that you call yourself a brother because you are living openly, rebelliously, contrary to what Christ calls you to in the context of this community and you're doing damage and you're not sorry and you're not intending to change and I'm telling you, we are not brothers. That is strong. That is strong. Consider this. If not the believers in Corinth, 
who says this to this man? Who will say this to this man? No one. That's who. I've, I'm going to tell a story. I am not the hero of the story I'm about to tell you. I'm not telling you this story because I did anything great, because I didn't. But I have sat with a couple of other friends a few years ago in a man's living room against his invitation because he was having an affair. And he was unrepentant and convinced that he could still live in his house with his wife and kids and carry on this thing. And his wife said, I need help. And so who do they call? His community. And we show up. And he's angry. And we're there to say what? I'll tell you. You have, you have two choices other than the third choice of beating us up. And that is you can repent and you can leave this relationship and promise to your wife that you will go through counseling and seek reconciliation with her and break off all communication with this other woman or you can leave this house before we do. And we helped him pack. And he's with his wife still. Because the apocalypse happened. (laughs) You know? The apocalypse happened in his life. He realized, I I actually am going to lose everything dear to me. I am going to lose my home. I am going to lose my wife. I am going to lose my children. I am going to lose my community and my friends. I'm going to if I continue in this course of action. And we had to press this. Did we do this because we were better than him? No. (laughs) Did we do this because we were the most graceful people and the most equipped people to saunter into that living room and conduct this interview? It was the most awkward experience of my life. It was terrible. And I wasn't even the main guy talking. It was just so awkward. So why did we do it? Because we loved him. And we loved his family. And we believed that he was blinded by sin in such a way that he honestly thought it was all going to be okay. And we knew it wasn't. And we were the only people in his life to do this. Who were we to judge? Well, we were the only people in his life with that perspective to do it. That's who we were to judge. And let me take it even further. In a very real way, This man was depending on us to do that in the context of community. He needed us to be his eyes and he needed us to be his heart. And so that's why we did it. There may be people in your life that you need to say hard things to. There may be people in your life that you need to say massive things to. Maybe people in your life that it's not as big, it's not as problematic, it's not as messy as the situation in 1 Corinthians 5, but still, if you don't speak, who will? Who will? Why do we keep quiet? Um, This book here, Peter Scazzaro, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I highly recommend this book. If at any point uh, in your life you've stopped to consider perhaps you are not a spiritually mature person, uh, this book 
will look into your heart. Uh, very, very helpful. But I want to read a, a, a part of this. We're talking about false peacemaking. Carl is upset about the behavior of a spouse who constantly come home, comes home late after work. He says nothing. Why? He thinks he is being like Christ by not saying anything, although he does give her a cold shoulder. He is a false peacemaker. Bob goes to dinner with 10 other people. He is tight financially, so he orders only a salad and appetizer. Meanwhile, the other nine order appetizers, steak, wine, and desserts. When the bill comes, somebody says, let's just divide the bill equally. It'll take forever to figure it out. And everybody agrees. And Bob is dying on the inside, but he won't say anything. He is a false peacemaker. Yolanda is engaged. She would like more time to rethink her decision but is afraid that her fiancé and his family will get angry, and so she goes through with the wedding. She is a false peacemaker. Sharon thinks her boyfriend is irresponsible, but feels bad for him. He's had so much pain already in his life, she thinks, how could I add to that? So she backs down from telling him the truth about the way his behavior is slowly killing their relationship, and the relationship dies a slow death. She is a false peacemaker. The problem, he says, with all these scenarios is that the way of true peace will never come through pretending what is wrong is right. The way of true peace will never come, never come through pretending what is wrong is right. True peacemakers love God, others, and themselves enough to disrupt false peace. And Jesus models this for us. False peacemaking. Paul is contending for these people. He's fighting for them. When he's saying, why are you not speaking? I'm going to pronounce judgment and I expect you to ratify it in his presence. He's contending for their hearts. The honor of Christ in the world is at stake there. People are looking at this church and finding it ridiculous and laughable because of its hypocrisy. And Paul is contending for them. And he's saying, this isn't about how the church looks to the world but it's about who the church really is in the world. Nothing kills the heart faster than going through the motions of religion without a sense of how it connects to who we are. We talked earlier about why we would say that Christianity is the morality that we should share and we should choose, especially if you're a Christian. Paul doesn't want these people in Corinth to be something they're not. He's not calling them to put on some arbitrary set of rules that has nothing to do with their reality. Earlier in the service, we read Psalm 139. It's a beautiful psalm about a beautiful truth that my days are numbered by the Lord, that he sees me, he knows me, that all my days are ordained by him, that he knows every facet and detail of my life. And then there's this woman who says, who am I to judge? And the answer is, if you're that person's brother or sister in Christ who is committed to a shared common morality, that's who you are to judge. You're a person who has entered into this community of living life before the gaze of God, embracing the reality that he knows me, that he loves me, that he's ordained my days, and that there's a way that I'm meant to live in relationship with him. God's law isn't arbitrary. It's not like he gives his law because there's just things he prefers and he'd rather we didn't steal because he just doesn't like stealing. No, it's that stealing breaks our relationships with him and with each other. These laws that he gives us matter. They speak into the reality of the world that he's created us to live in. So who says a biblical Christian morality is the morality we should embrace? My friend, uh, 
Charlie Peacock wrote a book a few years back called A New Way to Be Human. And the idea behind the title is this. If we were made by God, if people are created beings made by God and we were made for a relationship with him and that relationship is broken by sin, you know, I can't make my relationship with God right. It's too messed up. I can't fix it. And I need someone to fix it if I'm going to have the relationship that I was created for more than any other relationship ever. And Jesus is the only way that that can happen, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in my place is the only way I can have a right relationship with God. Then he says, the most authentic way for you to live as a human being on this planet is to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the most authentic way for you to live. This text is appealing to the heart to awaken us to what it means to be human, what it means to live, this earth under, live on this earth under the gaze of God in the context of community where God says, it's not good for you to be alone. This is part of his call to not be alone, is to live honestly with each other. And so Paul is appealing to the heart to wake up to the wonder and the mystery and the seriousness of following Christ. And so I ask you, what role is he calling you to in this even now. We're gonna take a few moments of time for you to reflect, to pray, to journal, to think. And here's the direction I wanna give you, and then we'll close the service. That there's a little bit of an argument from the greater to the lesser in, in Paul's texture. He's giving an extreme problem with an extreme solution, right? Think of it as two ends of a continuum. This is the extreme worst thing that can be going on. This is the most extreme reaction you can have. But where are you kind of in that continuum? Where are the situations, maybe they're not that bad and maybe they don't require that much of an extreme response, but still the principle applies, you should speak. Where are those? Name names in your heart and make a plan to do that. And then the other side of that coin, where do you need to invite that kind of engagement with other people? To say, I need you to search my heart. I need you to be my eyes and my heart. I need you to ask me specific questions. Who would be the people that you would ask to do that? And what would you ask them? And make that plan. Okay? Where do you need to speak and where do you need to invite people to speak? Let's take about three minutes and then we'll, we'll close the service.